0: This is the EY and Microsoft Tech Directions podcast, looking at the need to commit to a definitive cloud strategy. Ideas for leadership from the EY organization, offering clients the knowledge they need to harness Microsoft Azure. I'm your host, Simon Hobbs, in California. Organizations will soon be spending $1 trillion a year on the cloud, according to IDC. Choosing the correct cloud strategy is obviously critical, with far-reaching consequences. But it's a challenging decision because there's no one-size-fits-all. Some businesses will go all-in with a single provider. Others will drive for a multi-cloud solution to avoid vendor lock-in. But according to the two thought leaders that you're about to meet, what you do not want to do is attempt to plough a middle path because that will likely deliver the worst of both worlds. More importantly, they believe the middle ground can trigger paralysis, organizations left oscillating or vacillating between the two poles. This podcast is about how to craft a concrete cloud strategy and why in order to win, you should explicitly publish that agreed plan. Please remember conversations during this EY podcast should not be relied upon as accounting, tax, legal, investment, nor other professional advice. Listeners must consult their own advisors. Joining us now from Seattle, Rick Klaus, who from within the Azure engineering team leads Microsoft's cloud advocacy efforts to the ops community around the world. Rick, I really appreciate you sparing the time. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Simon. Great
0: to be here. And from New York, Tim Rehack joins us, who leads EY's cloud strategy team in the Americas. Tim, I really appreciate you helping us out to make this happen as well. Thank you.
2: My pleasure. Great to be here.
0: Okay, Tim, let's let's kick off by addressing the elephant in the room. You know, COVID-19 I think, as we probably all know now, tested every aspect of an organization, not just its technology, but its supply chains, its operations, and and latterly, even its culture. What has the pandemic meant for you doing your job on cloud competency within EY?
2: Sure. Yeah, COVID has definitely stressed our internal collaboration tools. Um, and had we been on-prem, I think uh, we would have been in for a world of hurt. But uh, luckily, we had been on uh, Microsoft uh, Teams for, I guess, a year and a half now or so. So when COVID came and and our um, employees worked from home, uh, it was really pretty seamless. And we've seen the same things really with our clients, that uh, those that had made good progress on their cloud journey were much better able to respond quickly uh, to what was changing in the marketplace. Um, there's a state government we do some work for. That uh, their unemployment uh, system was able to keep up with uh, dramatic uh, unemployment claims demand early on in COVID, and we saw, you know, many other states uh, not be able to do that. And the key difference was that their unemployment system had been migrated to the cloud and was able to scale, you know, very very quickly. And you know, honestly, I think it was about ten x the normal um, compute power that they were able to deliver on demand. So. Yeah, we've known all along that agility is one of the key benefits from cloud. And I think COVID, as you said, really proved that, uh, you know, once again for for everybody.
0: Well, three months into lockdown, you wrote a blog about those extreme and sudden shifts in demand, you know, scaling up and the scaling down, which which you're talking about. I guess, if anything, that reproved the case for the cloud, if proof were needed.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, right? As EY, we talk to CIOs and CFOs and CEOs for that matter. But You know, CFOs have always kind of liked the concept of being able to link, you know, underlying IT costs to the revenue stream. So, you know, we've had uh, retail clients that saw their digital business grow 40, 50, 60 percent. And, you know, their cloud costs went up, uh, probably not as fast as their revenue did, but they were able to scale and achieve those revenue gains because they were in the cloud. You know, we've got other clients that were severely disrupted and, you know, their uh, revenues went dramatically down, but their cloud costs also went dramatically down. Wasn't anything in particular they had to do. They just were seeing less demand for compute, which was powering their transactions. And that, you know, dramatically uh, brought down the cost of the cloud for them. So in both, you know, increasing market and a decreasing market, the ability to tie sort of underlying cost directly to revenue is something that uh, most CFOs really uh, respond to. And most uh, CIOs, I think, are happy to be able to enable
0: you know rick the other the other major dynamic that i think we should mention that I, that i believe from what i can gather occurred during covid-19 is a simultaneous explosion in the range of services that are being offered by engineering teams like yours at microsoft in the cloud not least artificial intelligence and machine learning i mean that would be a potential game changer at any time but it seems to have occurred In the middle of covid correct
1: well i think i think what you saw was actually as just kind of like what tim mentioned the proof is in the pudding the the unfortunate circumstances around the heavy stressors of a worldwide pandemic like COVID 19 really forced a lot of different organizations including microsoft to go through and and truly live what we've always been saying about agility using cloud as one of the ways to get there This actually gave uh, Microsoft uh, a very large customer base that was actively using these technologies uh, in a much higher intensity way. And we were able to determine uh, certain faults and certain tweaks that we had publicly talked about. A a great example, like we talked about Microsoft Teams uh, as an example uh, for collaboration for tools that Microsoft and EY has used. Um, We actually went down like any other service provider with an issue of capacity And we actually tweaked behind the scenes things within the code itself to make it so that we had more capacity to handle more customers at such the rapid pace. Something as simple as the dot, dot, dot that someone is typing, as an example. We turned that down or completely off for a period of time just to be able to give more processing cycles to the rest of that particular software-based solution uh, for collaboration that our customers were using so that we could onboard more customers. So The volume was there, the technology was there, and even we embraced a lot of cloud concepts because obviously we're a cloud provider uh, to be able to maximize the return on the processing power that we had.
0: Tim, your response within EY again during COVID-19 was to become the first of the big force to set up dedicated teams to help your clients develop the capabilities that they then need to harness what Rick is offering over at Microsoft. Why did you decide to do that? And how big a funnel is that for Rick? The key, I think, differentiator for clients
2: out there today is how quickly uh, can they learn, right? And their organizations learn and then take advantage of the new technology to uh, create a, a market opportunity. And so, you know, Microsoft is doing all this great engineering but it doesn't just, uh, you know, uh, magically <laughs> uh, then uh, uh, translate into all of the different customers. So they lean on EY to to work with Microsoft very closely, understand exactly what Microsoft is working on, that's going to be available, you know, in three months and six months and nine months, and then help them better understand and take advantage of that roadmap.
0: Mm. Talk, talk us through the speed at which you observe different industries moving I'm I'm thinking particularly on on AI and, and, and machine learning but I mean generally across the board as far as cloud is concerned.
2: Sure, yeah, during COVID particularly and probably even before right there was a you know a dramatic shift towards cloud computing and and digital transformation in consumer product and retail right the you know the move away a bit from brick and mortar to uh multi-channel and, and online channels um certainly you know absolutely killing it uh, right now in in that industry. Um, Healthcare going pretty quick, Um, financial services kind of interestingly, I would say were late adopters to cloud and uh, predominantly because they had security and and particular compliance issues that were a challenge for them early on. But uh, the shift has been dramatic over the last several years and uh, financial services right now is adopting cloud at a very, very rapid pace. And then, you know, you have some traditional industries like uh, utilities. That uh, move slightly slower pace, right? So they are absolutely all, uh, you know, on the cloud journey, but they may be, you know, at step one or step two, and they certainly have, you know, longer investment cycles, and it takes a little bit longer for them to uh, dramatically change their workforce to take advantage of of some of these technologies.
0: Rick, you make a fascinating point: the the businesses coming into COVID nineteen that had already made the forward looking cloud investments could obviously harness the agility. That we're speaking about, but for many clients, you say it actually slowed migration to the cloud because of this absolute imperative, as you put it, to to simply keep the lights on.
1: Yeah, we've seen customers that have gone through and have already made investments in cloud technologies. They ramped some of those up. They had customers who had not made investments as of yet, and they very rapidly uh, made the switch over to use some different resources inside of uh, clouds uh, like Microsoft, inside of Azure as well. The interesting part is, and this is something that Tim and I talked about many times, with regards to when you are in a situation, you have to choose the right solution that's going to work for you and your user base. And so for some, it might mean you're going to need to go in and kind of shore up and fix some stuff on-premises, but then take advantage of some hybrid capabilities inside of the cloud. Others are going to identify individual workloads that make total sense. They can't scale on-premises. They can scale inside of a cloud environment just from the sheer factor of machine sizes, and they can migrate lock, stock, and barrel that whole chunk of a workload up inside of a hyperscale cloud like Microsoft Azure and then scale those sizes as required, as Tim's blog post pointed out, bring them down when they're not required to be able to reduce the cost. The biggest issue really is whether or not they're going the next step after moving workloads, after examining workloads to move, uh, and are they taking advantage of all they can to recoup the benefits of using cloud beyond the simple first step, the bright, shiny thing, the sizing, and the agility of turning stuff on and turning stuff off. Those value-add services where they actually get the most benefit.
0: I started this conversation by saying that, that you guys are very worried about people being in the middle ground and that that can cause paralysis and the worst of both worlds. Are you saying that as a result of COVID, actually, there are more companies, multinationals in your case, that by default, by the hybrid nature of what they were doing, ended up in that middle ground, they end up in, a, in an area that may be potentially dangerous for them, Rick?
1: I'll clarify a bit. It's not necessarily the middle ground that they're stuck on premises or they're, they're stuck inside of a hybrid world. It's more so that they're not making a clear choice. They're reactively going through and just simply choosing to move something and then leave it and not touch it after the fact. That's the paralysis. You can't just simply move or or choose a strategic workload, say this is going to go to a cloud environment, take advantage of some agility or some new hybrid adaption between that particular workload with on-premises and there. That's not the paralysis that that we're concerned about. It's the not re-examining how that particular workload is working and how it can better be tweaked, refined, reimagined, re-envisioned, re-engineered. To take advantage fully of all those different cloud resources, or that they choose to go and uh, use the best of this cloud provider, the best of that cloud provider, the best of the other cloud provider, the best of on-premises, and end up with a very complex and overly complex solution, thinking that they're going to be in a better situation. Being very mindful of how to leverage the cloud technologies and take advantage of uh, what makes the most sense for your workload is where the ultimate place I'm hoping customers
0: go. Tim, in your, in your experience, why do people struggle with the creation of a definitive cloud strategy in practice?
2: I think it's a combination of things. One, you know, many of our clients, when they first created their cloud strategy, didn't have a ton of cloud experience. So they're making these really long range, impactful decisions before they actually have the experience they need to make them. And obviously, you know, as EY, we we do our best to advise them and counsel them. But, you know, ultimately, it is our client's decision. And ultimately, early on, I think for a lot of them, they sort of lack that experience and the understanding of the implications of all of those decisions. I think second, you know, there are uh, a number really of sort of intertwined decisions that they're being asked to make. And you often have multiple camps within... You know these large enterprises, and sometimes the power shifts over time, right? So if you don't have wide consensus on a single strategy, there is always that opportunity for those folks who felt they lost out (laughs) on the first go round to try to relitigate it, and you know open up the question again and again. So we certainly feel strongly that you know your cloud strategy needs to be evergreen and adopt and adapt as 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 you go. But at the same time, you know, if you're constantly reassessing those decisions you've already made, or those decisions are being questioned by folks that have um, decision rights further down in the organization, um, it can lead you to a bad place. And, you know, ultimately, the the worst end case scenario is a random placement of workloads in multiple clouds without a strategy and a plan up front
0: rick you're nodding furiously there
1: no it's just tim is absolutely capturing it right there it's your cloud strategy doesn't mean that it all has to be on the cloud your cloud strategy is the best for your workload but you have to commit to one and make sure everyone clearly understands it examples that tim brought up the whole concept of going with a cloud first strategy that is the evergreen project so new projects coming into being at customer sites, net new creations of, of line of business apps or internal apps for solutions. It's obvious that using a cloud solution is a very quick way to prototype, test it out, refine it, make sure that it works, have an agile approach to it, and then meets the customer's needs. Fantastic. The longer, more complex designs of migrating workloads up and out of an area because of a data center closure or because of a leased hardware that's going to disappear or something like that. Those are much more complex and a valid strategy could be that it's going to be hybrid for these portions and it's going to be cloud native for these other portions of that one particular workload. Um, But having that strategy and not, as you mentioned, oscillating between paralysis and decisions uh is what you're ultimately trying to do with the cloud strategy and as tim points out as well um not necessarily having let's use everything let's use best of breed let's just focus on one let's just go on prem that is where you end up in the trouble uh, because it's not well thought out and not well adapted for the overall decision maker flow
0: i just want to take a little bit of a step back and explain what the two basic strategies are. Just explain the option of going all in with a single provider. Sure,
2: yeah. So for some of our clients, they say that, yeah, we're gonna pick one hyperscaler and you know, we're gonna to try to get most of our workloads there. And for large enterprises, actually, they all end up at least a little bit multi-cloud, but they might end up 90% you know, in a single hyperscaler. And the good news there, right, is that they then have a less complex environment they have a less complex skills environment, right? Because their people can focus on, on one set of skills and one set of services. Um, you know, Rick could probably tell you better, but uh, Microsoft and, and the other hyperscalers are releasing you know, thousands of services per year. So if I'm in multi-cloud world, I've got to keep track of you know, many times thousands, right? So being able to pick one, go deep with skills reduces complexity. The bad news, obviously, is you are a bit locked into that vendor. You, you need to make that decision and say, look, this is my partner. I want to be close to this company. I feel good about their direction. I know that they're going to be in business in five years, and 10 years. I'm not worried about you know, relying too much on them. So I'm willing to, to get locked in with this vendor. And you know, if I'm willing to do that, then I get back quite a bit on you know, simplicity
0: and uh, lower cost to operate. Rick, I guess as a vendor, that, that's the option you love at Microsoft, provided they come to you.
1: <laughs> well, the, what I will say is that all the hyperscale cloud providers are doing their best to make sure that we're using um, native tools for the different services that are available. So, for instance, if you're going to be doing some of the more advanced stuff with Kubernetes services, which is the buzzword du jour, Um, we're going to make sure that we're using a CNCF version of Kubernetes services that all the regular tools are going to work with. And other cloud providers should also be doing this as well to try to limit some of the, uh, not necessarily limit the lock-in, but simply limit the skill set lock-in that you have to have by only knowing how one cloud provider does it versus the other cloud provider while using an industry uh, norm of using something like containerized services. Uh, but uh, Tim is bang on with regards to the skill set that's there and required investments. When you understand how, for instance, IaaS, the entry point for a lot of cloud cloud solutions, works within Azure, it's going to be different than how it works within uh, hyperscale provider X, whichever the X happens to be. They have their own way of... How you manage and work and provision and tune and tweak and use the IaaS uh, infrastructure as a service virtual machines inside of their world. Those don't translate between the other and requires a very specialized skill set. Uh, and we try our best to to minimize the the differences for the skill set requirements to make it so that customers have choice.
0: Right, uh, Tim. Just for the sake of completeness, just just run us through that second basic cloud option being multi cloud, and and just. I mean, for people who, who this subject is new to, just what, why did vendor lock-in become so scary?
2: Yeah, you know, I think uh, to be fair in the in the IT industry, right? We've seen before when when a single vendor gets too much power in the industry, and we've got a few examples of that, certainly going back. So I, I think that you know, IT executives are um, are concerned about about doing that. I think you know, in my mind, the fact that there are you know two hyperscalers that have tremendous market share and a third that is growing very quickly. Um, and you know, actually internationally a fourth and a fifth that, you know, have some, um, some traction as well. Um, really, you know, makes that less of a concern, but that concern is certainly out there. So yeah, some clients say, look, you know, we want to be 50, 50, or we want to be 80, 20 in, you know, hyperscaler a and 20% in hyperscaler B. And we're going to do that purposefully and upfront. And not only that, usually they then say also look, we don't want to use too many PaaS services um, from, you know, either of the clouds because that can tend to lock us in and how Microsoft operates a database, you know, as a, a platform is is different than other hyperscaler, right? So we tend to avoid more of the PaaS stuff. We tend to do things more like uh, in Kubernetes, for instance, so I could potentially move workloads back and forth from cloud to cloud and you know the goodness there is i avoid vendor lock in the goodness is i can you know take advantage if i believe that hyperscaler b has the best ai and machine learning right now i can take advantage of that um the bad news is i do buy some more complexity from skills perspective i buy more operational complexity and ultimately i've got to be a little bit smarter with my workload placement um we have seen some clients that sort of randomly Uh, disperse their workloads between two or more hyperscalers, and then they spend an awful lot of time moving data back and forth. You know, there's the effort involved, and there's also cost, egress costs, right, from coming out of the cloud. So if I'm, you know, moving a lot of transactional data back and forth between multiple clouds, uh, all of a sudden that can start to get expensive.
0: Before we talk about the middle path and and, and why that gives us difficulties, I mean, Rick, are there examples of the the two polar options that you would cite as being great examples of when it works, it works really well?
1: We've developed some tooling that allows us to go through and and enable customers that do go down that multi-cloud path. Uh, As an example, um, one of the things that we've done is we've made a heavy investment over the last year and a half in a technology that we're calling Microsoft Azure Arc. And Azure Arc is basically, at a very simplified level, uh, the ability to go in and to receive and take commands and policy and apply it down to different workloads for how people should be accessing content, can take data and logs and analytics and performance data, centralize it up inside of one spot to be able to do large-scale analysis on that particular data and basically have a one pane of glass for how you would manage that particular workload of an IaaS workload or a Kubernetes workload in someone else's cloud environment, uh, as well as the one that's inside of Azure, and even as the one that maybe you're developing on on-premises too, and you have that one pane of glass to bring all that data together to be able to analyze it and to look at it, and at the same time, technically go off and manage it to say, you can or you cannot deploy in this area based on what groups you belong to, based on where you go to. So you don't, we're building the tooling necessary that's there to make it so customers can be successful if they find themselves inside this multi-cloud environment and if that's the design that they've purposely chosen to go down towards.
0: Uh, let, let's talk about people wanting to find a middle path and not wishing to favor either of the, the two polar options. Tim, I think even you would admit that oftentimes in IT, plowing a middle path can succeed. I mean, this is tradition for a lot of you guys in your community, isn't it?
2: Yeah, for sure. And I do think, you know, there are uh, many examples, right, where the sort of middle path between the two strategies makes the most sense. But in the cloud space, what what we see happening is clouds, you know, clients that end up, you know, essentially in multi-cloud, but that wasn't their strategy, have all the complexity and the skills challenges, but they also end up with a fair amount of vendor (laughs) lock-in because they didn't do it strategically. And then they also don't spend enough time thinking about which workloads go where. So instead of having, you know, a specific data domain in a single hyperscaler so that the data movement is eased, they end up with one HR, application in uh, hyperscaler A and another in hyperscaler B. And, you know, they, they end up with the data movement challenges anyways, right? So, you know, they they miss out on the ease and the simplicity of, uh, you know, a, a single or, a, you know, a strong uh, majority 90% in one cloud. But then they also really lose out as well on the uh, sort of ability to move workloads back and forth and the, you know, not being locked in because they haven't,
0: sort of fully declared on, you know, an abstraction strategy. Right. Rick, I've heard you observe that often clients almost by default end up generating six or seven micro strategies that they're unable to choose between. How, how do they get to that stage? Because I'm assuming that's what then leads to the paralysis or, or the vacillation often, correct?
1: Yeah, this conundrum of having too many um, too many cooks in the kitchen, if you will, of making decisions for their own individual projects and no centralized vision for what the ultimate. Single cloud strategy should be that has enough input from the different expertise areas of the storage admins of the the networking gurus of the the advocates of using cloud native technologies that are inside and the also the anti cloud people that happen to be inside those different organizations if you don't have the ability to bring them all together to have a voice and a say in making that single strategy that they all can buy into you're going to end up with dissent and you're going to end up with folks that just are not committed to going down that path. They go and they, on their particular portion of a particular project, decide to go off and no, we're going to stick with this cloud provider over here, even though you're going with the other one because all my folks are trained up and they understand this one better so I can provide you with better services. That's when you end up with a lot of the fragmentation that we've seen so far.
2: Yeah, one of the things that we see happen, right, is if you don't have a clear, you know, governance process and decision framework and and clear lines of who makes each decision and how it's made and that is anchored in your strategy, you know, different teams are actually executing against different strategies that are sometimes orthogonal to the direction that the CIO wants to go. And so you see each application then you know, be litigated, if you will, you know, throughout the organization as to where it should go and how it should go. And that can really be a, a big, big time sink and cause the cloud program overall to slow down dramatically. So we believe pretty strongly in getting a decision framework agreed to that is tied to the strategy that's been agreed to and then tied into the governance structure within IT so that it's clear who makes the decisions about what should move and where it should move, should it move to hyperscaler A or hyperscaler B, um, and how it should move. I think you know one of the real complex <laughs> uh, parts of this issue is that over the last, you know, many years, IT has, has kind of decentralized decision making and allowed for more and more local autonomy, which is, I think, uh, you know, a good thing in general, but it has led to uh, the inability to make and hold to a single strategy uh, from a centralized uh, sort of command and control perspective. So we end up localizing or optimizing locally, and cloud is honestly something that needs to be optimized for the enterprise. And we've kind of lost the ability, I think, as an IT organization or organizations to do that well. We've lost that muscle, and we need to rebuild it around cloud uh, in order to be able to execute quickly.
0: I think you make the same point, Rick, with, with a nod to the basic principles of IT architecture. The, the the cloud is a situation when you ultimately need to optimize at the enterprise level, which is what Tim is saying, but you do that, importantly, via this decision framework, where you get all stakeholders committed to the strategy before you start, correct?
1: Yeah, when everybody feels that they have a seat at the table, but then ultimately someone makes the decision, this is the way we're going to go, and we've all agreed to this, or people have agreed to disagree, but they understand in principle what the nature is behind it. You get out of that paralysis mode that Tim talks about, and we've been talking about on this podcast. Um, it's it's important to understand that if, that a lot of the that a lot of the people that are making these contributions and discussions have valid points that potentially for this particular scenario, something's going to work, something's not going to work based on their experiences because it's that tribal knowledge they have about those individual experiences. But ultimately, the agreement of going forward and progressing down the path of modernization, progressing down the path of adopting cloud technologies or hybrid strategies that work, um, that ultimately is going to get the internal customer and the external customer what they need done and what they need from the IT services environment. Uh, to get those projects moving forward. The biggest thing that can happen uh, that can be a blocker to this has been the, I'm moving something just for the sake of moving it, which is like one of the worst cases, or I'm moving it and I'm done hands-free, it's over with. You have to continue to re-examine that workload and the services that you're using to make sure that you're using them in an optimal fashion and that you're getting the most value from them.
0: Uh, Tim, you're very clear. Once a business has hammered out a single clear cloud strategy, it needs to be explicit, and it needs to publish that. Where does it publish it? What does it do with that? Is that a letter to the staff? And why is it so important to you? It's defining, I think, in the, in the way that you view this. Yeah, I think
2: the CIOs that we see do this best, they, they tell this story, and they, they uh, get behind the strategy, and they tell it repeatedly. And you know, it's funny, and, and honestly, a lot of CIOs I speak to are kind of uh, annoyed with it. But like it takes seven times sometimes to tell people the same thing before they truly hear it, right? And maybe before they truly believe that you're gonna enforce those rules. So um, it's something that needs to be done at town halls, it needs to be published on whatever, you know, standards, uh, uh, websites the clients might have. Yeah, go out in the weekly newsletter on the cloud program. Um, Just constant reminders that yes, we've had this conversation, we understand the pros and cons, we've debated it, we came to a decision, and this is how we're executing.
0: what are the key elements that have an impact on the decision-making process? I guess you start from where the business is now and, and where it needs to be. And can you explain this, this expression, lift and shift, and why it concerns you so much? Sure.
2: Well, you know, we do feel actually that there's appropriate times for lift and shift. So lift and shift fundamentally is taking a workload that's running on-prem and moving it really without any significant change to the cloud. So, You know, the good news is, right, it's out of my data center and maybe I can close a few data centers, Um, but I haven't fundamentally re-architected the application to take advantage of the cloud. So in this case, the cloud is acting kind of like my data center. Now, hopefully I've got a little bit more automation. Um, You know, the hyperscalers uh, potentially have more scale than I do. So maybe it's cheaper for some clients, for some workloads, but I haven't done anything really dramatic other than move something to really take advantage of of, the cloud, I need to re-architect the application so it can scale dynamically, right? If I lift and shift a a workload, it doesn't gain dynamic scaling just by moving to the cloud, I actually have to do something to that workload. So for some of our clients, actually most of them, there's a combination of, we always refer to the the six Rs, right? So um, from left to right, the best business case actually is for retire. If I find things that I just don't need to run anymore, I turn them off. That's a pretty good business case, right? Um, next up, uh, we refer to as rehost, and that is a pure lift and shift. So you know good news it's pretty easy to do. I can get it done quickly. Bad news, not a ton of savings, right? Not a ton of of agility gain. but you know, there is some goodness in that. next up. Microsoft and EY tends to refer to as a refactor. Other hyperscalers might call this uh, a replatform. But I will do a lift and shift, but I'll optimize a few things. Maybe I'll move to a PaaS database layer, or maybe I'll upgrade an operating system, or maybe I'll add some automation around uh, turning workloads off when they're not being used. So a little bit more cost to migrate, a little better benefit on the agility and on the cost perspective. Next up is re-architecting the app. and. This is a big change to the application. I'm going to change the architecture or some of the components, a bigger investment uh, to make that happen, but bigger returns, both from a cost and an agility benefit. And then last uh, is rewrite. So I'm going to essentially start over with this application. I'm going to write it in cloud-native fashion. Um, probably these days, it'll be microservices, and probably these days, it'll be on Kubernetes. Um, and now I can take advantage of all of the wonderful things that the cloud has to offer, all of the services that the hyperscalers have invested in, and I gained the most cost and agility benefit. But oh, by the way, the cost to actually rewrite that app is pretty high.
0: So bigger investment, bigger return, longer time to break even. I'm really impressed that you got through all of the six R's. I, I only had four on my list there, Tim. Ah, well it might have been 5. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> but Rick, this is hard to do. I mean, you've said yourself a lot of engineers don't want to go back and look at the code that was written before. They'd rather get involved in the greenfield stuff. I mean, this is a this is a, a political problem within an organization, I'm assuming.
1: It definitely is, and I do go, do want to give kudos to to Tim for that beautiful spectrum discussion he just did a second ago because it really does kind of lay out the path that we've seen for the maturity of someone's cloud strategy. Being able to go down to that last level and absolutely as tim mentions the 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 higher up on that scale you happen to go the more benefits you end up reaping from using these cloud technologies that are in there but we do see a lot of customers that kind of come in and they stop at the lift and shift take a breath take a break and then all we will get back to that in a bit but they, they don't come back to it um the, the incremental step even of just coming back and revisiting. Oh, we used to back up our stuff this way on premises. Now we'll do it differently inside of the cloud environment. Oh, we, we, we used to rely, as, as Tim mentioned, on uh, a dedicated virtual machine for SQL or for your database layer for the, our application. Uh, now let's go and we don't want to manage the complexity of the machine anymore. We now just want to take advantage of the platform as a service from database as a service options uh, to be able to go off and to have access to our, our, our the data for that particular layer. The higher up in that scale you go, the more benefits you reap and the more payback you get. You don't get stuck inside of the world of We've moved it, it's done, it's technically in the cloud. We'll move on to the next 700 workloads. We have to decide if you want to retire. (laughs) I love that. Or if you want to keep around in some kind of a modified form.
0: And we should remember, Rick, that you sit within the Azure engineering team talking to engineers around the world. I mean, fundamentally, I think for both of you, it comes down to guardrails. In the struggle to be more agile, to give teams more autonomy, someone has to figure out how to make it clear that certain tenants of the plan are not up for debate, Rick.
1: Yeah, having those defined on the paper-based and then the people process side of things absolutely is required. Tim's done a great job going through some examples of how to go off and get this communicated. The good part is, is a knowledgeable team of individuals that understand the platform that they've chosen should go in and make sure that they have set up those guardrails, set up those policies, set up the different governance places, uh, things that are in place, that they always wanted to put in place on-premises but never got around to. Now they're in this green space of using cloud technologies. They can go through and say, oh, you know what, the, the data team Uh, has the ability to go through and spin up these types of vms only not these super large super expensive ones unless they're inside a production but in their development environment they can spin them up of this certain size or they can only be running for so many hours if they're inside the lab environment and they get shut down automatically you can put all these different processes in place and you can put the guardrails in place too um so for instance Uh, You have the ability to empower the different dev teams for different projects to allocate and create architectures and resources within the scope of their area for their project. But then they don't go and overcommit or overpopulate or overcreate these different things. uh, That potentially is going to incur a very large cost. So you can have these guardrails put in place. They can be flexible, flexible. To a point to give them the autonomy to work as their teams need to work but at the same times they still are there to enforce when they're over exceeding their bounds of where they should be working very simple examples with sizes of Vms is the way that's the easiest way to tangibly explain it but it goes much 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 more at depth because all hyperscale clouds Microsoft Azure included has these different policies these different governance guidelines and these different blueprints as a way to set this up so You've got the guardrails, the customers have the autonomy, and the teams within your companies have that autonomy as well.
0: We're, we're rapidly rapidly running out of time here. Uh, Tim, from the outside, when the cloud works, when does it work really well? What do you see at EY as examples that should spur everybody on to, to these ideals?
2: The kind of good news is right that most of our clients have come to the same conclusion, and, and that is that cloud architecture wins. right? And honestly, I don't think there's any debate. So if if you're creating, you know, a new application today, you know, you're going to do it in the cloud. And if you don't do it in the cloud, then it's probably immediately technical debt that's going to have to get migrated in the near future. Right. So so like at least in my career in I.T., I have not never seen, you know, the whole industry, you know, sort of make the same decision almost at the same time. So I think that's the good news. And I think the clients that are doing it the best, you know, they've taken the time up front to experiment a little bit and then create the strategy, create the governance, create the decision framework, so that they can you know, move quicker later, right? And then they can go and revisit that every 12 months or 18 months, but you know, let's not revisit it on a daily basis. And then you know, they tend to also have a mix of the, of the five R's or six R's in the portfolio, right? Because if you wanna go rewrite every application, it took us 70 years to accumulate those applications, right? So we're going to rewrite them all in 18 months is not a very good strategy, right? Um, so there's got to be some combination of lift and shift and re, re-architect and rewrite and honestly replace with um, software as a, as a service solution as well. So, you know, decide on your strategy, decide on the mix and what's appropriate for each application and then go execute against that plan Uh, those clients tend to be uh, very happy and very well positioned, as we've seen with COVID, for a world that changes faster and faster every day. We cannot survive without agility in our technical
0: solutions, and cloud is a key enabler. Let let me ask you one final question each. Uh, First of all, to you, Rick, what I really want to ask you is where we'll be in five or 10 years' time. But the cloud is moving so fast, and, and the hyperscalers seem to be moving so fast. I don't know how how you can answer that. But you are in a truly unique position to understand within the Azure engineering team. Where do you think we'll be in in five years or 10?
1: See, this is where I can give you my typical consulting answer of it depends, but I'm not going to do that. But what I will say is that Microsoft Azure uh, and quite frankly, all hyperscale cloud providers, we build the solutions that our customers are asking for and that they're looking to have hard situations or hard problems solved. And we're very customer focused uh, to make sure that we have what our customers need before they actually need to have it. And so we have a very strong listening arm. I'm part of that listening arm as an example to be able to go through and to bring feedback from customers back to the engineering teams to help them craft their products better or create net new products. Uh, And customers ultimately end up succeeding because we do that and all cloud providers do that.
0: But what you seem to be saying is that, is that the two sides, the clients and you guys within the engineering teams are moving at different speeds. And maybe that will become more dramatic, I think, as time goes on.
1: I, I think the record's going to show that we're always moving. We're, we'll, we're always going to be moving at different speeds and we're going to be doing our best to stay ahead of what customers are asking uh, and provide them with solutions that will solve their needs once they come to the, the ability to adopt and to use some of these newer technologies and so really in the next 5 to 10 years it's just going to continue to grow and, and it's going to continue to evolve and we're going to be here and ready for you
0: when you're ready. Tim how do you see the, the the 5 10 year future didn't one of your clients ask you for a 15 year roadmap they they did and and you know I do think it's it's telling a
2: little bit about the the pressure in different industries right so you know if if your industry isn't undergoing a tremendous amount of change then you can afford to have a 15-year cloud roadmap. By the way, I can't create one for you because my cloud crystal ball runs out at about three years. Maybe <laughs> it goes to five years, but it certainly doesn't get us 15. But you know, in, in that particular industry, they weren't feeling pressure you know, that they had to change quickly. But as we've seen in financial services as we see in, in uh, retail, you know, there is tremendous pressure there. And I had a client uh, tell me actually, as we were trying to decide on a cloud strategy that, you know, he felt that the company wouldn't be there in five years if they didn't dramatically digitally transform and if they didn't make dramatic shifts to cloud. So if it's an existential question for the company, it's um, really impressive how fast some clients can move.
0: Tim Rehak, who leads EY's cloud strategy team in the Americas, and Rick Klaus, leading Microsoft's cloud advocacy efforts to the ops community. Thank you both. It's been a real pleasure, and I think I understand a lot more than I did when we started this.
2: No, this was great. I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's always fun to talk to Rick.
1: It's just been a pleasure being on this one. Uh, I love the conversation that uh, I've had, both with Tim and yourself, Simon. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: For more information, visit ey.com slash Microsoft. A quick note from the attorneys, the views of third parties set out in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the global EY organization, nor its member firms. Moreover, they should be seen in the context of the time in which they were made. I'm Simon Hobbs. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join us again for the next edition of the EY and Microsoft Tech Directions podcast, your digital world realized.